0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DiBevo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with a fellow Green Beret, Kevin Flight. Kevin went to military school and was determined to serve from a young age. After college, he enlisted in the U.S. Army with the goal of going straight through Special Forces training, an opportunity known as the 18 X-ray program. Funny that this is episode 18, pure coincidence. Kevin aspired to live the Green Beret motto, De Oppresso Liber, which is Latin for to free from oppression. As you'll learn, Kevin embodied this during multiple deployments to Afghanistan. In late 2011, he was shot during firefight and medically evacuated. He faced incredible uncertainty in his recovery, as well as incredible loss within his team. Kevin's story is one of great physical and spiritual fortitude. Kevin and I met through the Green Bray Foundation a little over a year ago, and I was glad to get a chance to catch up with him during the remaining weeks of 2020.
1: But to your point about COVID, too, I mean, I, I see a lot of people wishing away this year. And from someone who has been at points where he thought he was on his deathbed, I'll tell you one thing, man, you will not be wishing away anytime.
0: And you will very much wish that you had more time. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Kevin, it's good to have another Green Beret joining us on the uh, show today. Yeah, man, thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, where are you joining us from, Mass somewhere? Yeah, I'm South of Boston
1: in Weymouth, Massachusetts, in okay. the South Shore. Yeah, I see Boston area's got to work on their naming conventions because there's the South Shore, there's the South End, there's Southie.
0: So yeah, it was like, it was confusing for me at first. If you are not from there originally, you. You have to learn all the pronunciations. Yeah, my wife, she's from Cape Cod. I grew up okay. there
1: year round. Her family grew up in Boston, and like the thick accents. And uh, we we've been together since the first couple of weeks of our freshman year in college. We got married when we we're were three at the uh, Fayetteville County Courthouse there. Uh, as I'm sure you you know.
0: I've been uh, I've been a witness th- to a Fayetteville Courthouse <laughs> wedding. Yeah. Uh, I, well, best best man slash witness like day of. <laughs> hey, can you show up? <laughs> we're we were in the barracks
1: and we're like, hey, we need some witnesses to, to come to the to the wedding. so you guys wanna uh, come? And then we
0: we went to Texas Roadhouse afterwards to celebrate,
1: you know, oh, True fame
0: bill fashion, man. That's uh I mean we can only dream for such an event. <laughs> Was that like near the end of the Q course or beginning? That
1: was kind of near the beginning. So my wife, like, she had just finished up her master's degree at BU. was living on Hanover Street in the north end of Boston, which I don't know if you guys know, familiar with It's like the Italian part. It's really nice. Great place to live. And then she comes down, you know, to Fayetteville. We get married and we get a nice spot on the corner of Cliffdale and Riley Road. And like mm. some apartments that an E4 can afford. And uh, I was like, all right, well, uh, I'll see you later. I got to go to SUT for the next uh, two and a half months and then see your school. So I'll be gone for three months. And uh, it's kind of her, her
0: welcome into the SF lifestyle there. Probably right next to like a pawn shop, a strip club, and a used car dealership.
1: We were pretty excited because it was also next to a Waffle House, a Taco Bell, and a cookout. So there was. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, quite a
0: few Friday, and Saturday nights where the taxi dropped me off at the cookout rather than my apartment. So, yeah, back in the day where you could eat anything that you wanted and not worry about it because you were not only young, but you were in Green Beret training. Yeah, it's like well, I'm going to eat this cookout meal after a night of drinking and I'll still look like a cover model in the morning. So, perfect. Yeah, nice. So you guys met at uh, college, you said, so you're from like upstate New York near Albany and you went to college nearby there too, right? Yeah.
1: Grew up in a small town up there uh, called Stillwater and it was basically, it's like uh, probably three or 4,000 people, but you know, I've never met another person in my life that has the same last name as me that didn't grow up in that town. So uh, my, my family had been there for a little while, but just like an awesome place to grow up. I mean. Loved it. Great coaches, great teachers, great mentors, the small community feel to it, which when you're in that environment, I think people really invest in you a lot more. And mm. I, I felt that I had, you know, people that were looking out for me, people that were watching after me, that were teaching me, you know, be, besides my parents and stuff because of the small town community. I think even like after when I joined the military, they were very supportive. And after I got hurt, that like the, that town really came out to support quite a bit too. So it was a huge benefit growing up in that area, in that town. And when it came time to choose colleges for me, it was a pretty natural progression to go to the college that I went to. Like, I loved playing football. I wanted to play in college. The college that I went to, pretty like historic Division three football school. I'd been going to football camp since I was like a little kid there, and just set foot on campus and absolutely loved it. And you know, I I had went to an all boys Catholic military school prior. To college so like i went to college to like kind of let my hair down at the time yeah. um yeah. you know ha- had long hair and it's just like amazed that women were in class with me too um and you know as fate would have it you know met my wife a couple weeks into it and just have, have, have been together ever since
0: yeah catholic military school what's that like being a teenager and, and coming up through that, what's like uh, kind of an event or story or something that left an impression on you that just would take a minute for people, I guess, to, uh, to relate to.
1: I'll say I, I didn't really like going to school there at the time. I look back on it now and I think it's the best thing that's really ever happened to me. Um, my school is called the Sal Institute. It's in Troy, New York. And if I distill it down to like the three most important things that it taught me was to love God, love country. And put others above yourself, right? It really instilled that that like that Catholic virtue of of serving other people and service to a greater good in life. Yeah, and I think kind of given the military environment, the, the light bulb really went off for me of like, well, this is a way for me to serve, to serve other people, to put others above myself. And I I hate to admit it, but. When I was in my freshman year in military science class, we got to watch that really famous Navy SEAL Hell Week Discovery Channel thing. Yeah. So so I say it's the the SEALs, of course, that got me interested in special operations, right? Like we're watching that, and like half the class is like not paying attention because we're 14 years old, and uh, the other half is like, why would anybody want to do that? And I'm like, yeah, like that's it, like that's what I want to do in my life, right there. And so I think, you know, seeing that, getting exposed to the military and having this concept of wanting to serve the greater good, like it, it just seemed like a natural fit. And the military, you know, had always been something that was pretty prevalent in my life. Like I grew up less than a mile from the Saratoga battlefield, from the Revolutionary War, the turning point of our country. And so the history was always kind of in my face. You know, we were always... World War II, like from my earliest memories, we were watching History Channel documentaries on World War II in my house because uh, my grandfather, you know, served in Europe, and so it just was something that was always there. So that I really wanted to do anything. Kind of was was fostered by that that uh, school and that culture. But I'd say some things that were different that you guys probably didn't have in growing up at school were we would march instead of going to gym class a lot of times. Um, we would get inspected every morning to make sure we are like shaved and our hair looks good and our uniform looked proper. Um, so, you know, just stuff that you don't want to be doing as a teenager, but to me had a very lasting impression on me for, for the rest of my life. But I, I had this feeling that like, oh man, I'm going to go to West Point. And below my junior year, I'm like, there is no way I can do something like this again for college. And I went to college at 18 fully thinking like, I'm going to join the military after I graduate. Nine Eleven happened in my senior year of high school. But, you know, ultimately, like, I, I just, I wanted to have a college experience uh, rather than go to another military school. And so, you know, I, I tried ROTC for a little bit while I was in college. Um, didn't really last long. We didn't have a program at our school. I was playing football as president of my fraternity. And that was when a lot of the books started coming out about like the horse soldiers in Afghanistan and books like masters of chaos and the 18 x-ray program became new. And as I became more and more serious, you know, as graduation was approaching about like, all right, well, I know I want to join the military and I know I want to be in special operations. I started looking at like all the special operations, what they had to offer. And for me, it's just like day, oppressed only bear like, to free the oppressed. To, to be in those cultures and the customs and the languages and, and work with these guys and you know, have them be like, like the peace corps with guns, right? Like, I'm like, this is, <laughs> why would I want to do anything else in my life here? And so I, I tailored my studies towards, towards being a green beret. And, you know, I went to my dad one day and I said, dad, I got to learn another language. So I'm either going to learn Spanish or Mandarin Chinese. And my dad's like, he, he did a lot of business with, with Chinese companies. He's like, you should learn Mandarin. Definitely. I wish I knew Mandarin. Like, Oh, okay. I'll take Mandarin. And i was sitting in the first class. and I'm like, why the hell did I decide to take Mandarin instead of Spanish? But I stuck it out and I was able to minor in that and a minor in East Asian studies. And I majored in political science, which then kind of naturally gravitated me towards that area of the
0: world, which then allowed me to kind of go to the first special forces group. Did you have to retake language, or you just test it out for oh, I, I
1: Mandarin's a quite difficult language there, so Yeah, I definitely had to retake but, it. But, I
0: mean, I know some of the cavemen in SF who, like, barely passed their language test. You were probably, like, your teacher probably thought you were a delight when you got to language course.
1: yeah. And then, you know, I also, honestly, I didn't didn't do as well as I I, I thought that I would uh, through that, probably because I didn't take it as serious as I I needed to, because I had already studied some in college and and my my, uh, hubris got a hold of me there. But luckily, uh, luckily I was able to pass it. I was, felt really good about it towards the end of it. it It's like, you know, having great conversations and was really spitting it and, uh, you know, never used it again
0: (laughs) in the military. Yeah. When people hear that you went to college and then enlisted, you probably typically heard like, why weren't you an officer? Why would you make that choice? Was it because the 18 X-ray program, which is getting a shot at the Q course straight after enlistment, was available then? Or what influenced you? I, I get that all the time. Like, yeah. you know, I think you can think back to, right?
1: I joined, I was in college from 02 to 06, poli sci major, right? We're talking about the wars every day. And Uh at a Northeastern liberal arts school, the wars were not popular. And then there's me in the corner defending both of them. Right. Uh Um, Which, which really fueled me, I think to to join the military because I was like, look, man, you, if you're supporting something that has such grave consequences as war, then you, you better be a part of this thing. Right. And so for me, like, it was something like that I I knew I needed to do. And, but then, you know, when you're telling people this, they're like, well, at least would you go be an officer? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I I don't really, it's not that I didn't want to be an officer. It was that I knew what I wanted to do in the military. And, Uh you know, if you go to OCS, which was a thought that I had, right. You know, I could say, Hey, I really want to be an infantry platoon leader. And they'd be like, yeah, you know, but we really need somebody in supply. And that was just not something I was willing to kind of take the next four to five years of my life and, and gamble that away with and say, you know, kind of leave it up to the needs of, of mother army at that point. And so I knew it be like, Hey, this is the direct path for me to have a shot. Right. And you know, even then you're telling people your, your thought process and you're like, well, like, like 10% of the people are going to make it through there or 15% or whatever the number is extremely low. And I'm like, yeah, but I'll be one of those people. I can promise you that or I'll die or I'll die in the process. Like one of the two things will happen. And so for me, that's really the reason why Like I knew I wanted to be a Green Beret. I wanted to be a part of that day, a liber mission. That's there's nothing else that I wanted to do more in my life. And so enlisting to do the 18 X-ray program was the direct path to that. And I figured out from there, like, you know, I love it. I hate it. I want to stay in the military. I can go to OCS afterwards. And so that was kind of my thought process. But yeah, to be honest with you, a lot of the 18 x-rays that, I, that I, I came up with, that I saw, that I continued to speak with, a lot of them had went to college beforehand. A lot of them have, have worked professionally in, in some pretty high-performing jobs, like you know, investment banking or law firms. Uh, I went to basic training with a guy who was 29 years old he had two master's degrees. One of them was literally in rocket science and was working for NASA before he joined to be
0: uh, a great ray. So it was, it was a pretty eclectic group of, uh, of people that decided to take that path. Yeah. I, re- I wasn't, uh, I wasn't an 18 x-ray. I came from the infantry, but I came like as soon as I was able, <laughs> like, uh, you have to be promoted to specialist and and I the recruiter had my paperwork like the day that I got promoted to specialist. So I knew I wanted to come when I first joined the army I was or I signed my paperwork at 17 and and didn't actually even know about special force. So I just was like, I'm gonna be infantry. I want to fight. And then a roommate of mine went to selection, came back and I was like, what's that? And figured I would go. But all the guys that came or a lot of the guys that came in the 18 X-ray program that I met in the Q course that you know I became great friends with had college had worked, had done something, and were a little older. And sometimes they got, like, the instructors would shit on them because they came right in to be special forces. But it's like these guys had a little more life experience than some of us too, right? No, I think that's that's pretty accurate, man. I, mean, I was going
1: through the Q course in 2007, 2008, and the instructors hated the 18x race. <laughs> like, just, you know, resented us for not... Not all of them, but I, I think that there was a kind of a mentality sometimes of like, "Hey, you guys, like, you know, you didn't serve your time in the army," so I, I, that I think kind of invited itself to a little bit more scrutiny, a little bit more punishment, in a good way, right? And I, and I think mm. that probably extra attention that I did get from instructors was incredibly beneficial down the road, you know, going to combat.
0: Yeah. So you're kind of tailor-made to go to first group, right? Did you want to end up at first group, which has the, you know, the Asian area of responsibility traditionally in SF, and then you were an engineer sergeant, right? Yeah. Did you care what job you got in SF? And when did you start to try to make your preferences? I, I had done
1: prior to, to, like enlisting and actually like getting on that plane down to Benning to begin this journey. I did as much research as I possibly could talked to as many people as I could to the point of which it was like diminishing returns where it was like, you just have to go and do this thing. Hmm. So at the time I was like as well versed as I could be in, in, in terms of like what the positions on the team were, you know, and then I, as an 18 x-ray I had to, after basic training and airborne I had to go to like a month long pre-selection where they they started teaching us even more about what you would do with these four roles, like you know you're not just gonna be blowing stuff up all the time as an engineer. You're not just gonna be shooting guns the a weapons sergeant. Saying these are your like primary and tertiary roles that you'd have on the team. The tertiary ones being the less sexy, like the paperwork and you know yeah. The yeah. supply and stuff. So I started thinking about what I wanted to do, and you know ultimately, like I don't mind shooting. You know I don't mind going to the range. Um, My idea of a fun day though, is not spending eight hours at the range. Like I wasn't the guy in the team room talking about his guns all the time. Um, I I wasn't allowed to touch the radios because I screw things up. Surprisingly, I work in tech and I've been working in tech for three years, but I used to type with two fingers. Uh, Well, I still do actually, you know, that I I haven't cured that one. I really wanted to be a medic more than anything. But in 2007, when I joined, I was worried the wars would end without me getting to go. Yeah, I guess we worry about the wrong things in life. So I was like, there's yeah. no way I can spend a year in the schoolhouse or like a year and a half if I fail these courses. Like I, I gotta, I have to be done with this. You know, I, I had to fight the urge throughout college to not drop out to enlist. Just felt so guilty. I'm like, there's kids my age that are out there fighting and I'm, I'm here partying and, and playing football. So I was like, I, I gotta finish this course as fast as possible. I need to get to war as fast as possible. Which as a young person, you know, you, you're not listening to what other people are saying to you. You're not listening to them when they're saying, hey, like, slow down, man, because you're going to get there and, and you might find yourself, you're going to get your wish and it's, it's going to be worse than you thought. So I, I chose the engineering route because I wanted to learn how to, to build things. I wanted to learn how to blow stuff up. Um, turns out as an engineer, you're going to blow some stuff up. You're going to spend a lot of time building stuff. And you're going to be in austere environments so and you're not going to have any supplies and you're not going to have any support. And everybody's going to be wondering why, why did we lose power in the Philippines? Or why can't you have this done in Northern Afghanistan? And so it was an awesome job that really taught me how to think outside of the box because no matter what, like that base needs to have power and you better right. figure out a way to do it, man. And you wait, oh, the supply line stopped before it got to you. All right, well, you better figure out how to get some supplies up there to build that base. And so it really helped me start to think about how to creatively solve problems and work on project management. We had the ability to manage a 20-person local Afghan work crew to build our base. And so the delegation of that and how do I work with these guys who like one of them barely speaks English and saw him working and like, all right, well, you look like the leader of this crew, man. So I'm going to pay you like a dollar extra a day and you're going to lead and so, so the engineering role, I think, really helped set me up for success, you know, kind of later on in, in life. Despite the fact that I didn't necessarily like doing a lot of the paperwork involved with it, or you know, being responsible for all the inventories with
0: it. The thing you said about wanting to get to the to the war sooner because you thought it would end brings up a couple things to me. One is like COVID and people anxious to get to 2021 thinking it'll just end because it's a new year. And I don't know how much we can rely on that. There's another one great movie quote, like one of the first scenes in Apocalypse Now, he says, all I wanted was a mission. And for my sins, they gave me one. Yeah. So it's like, be careful what you wish for. And I'm not kidding. Like there were times in Afghanistan where
1: my, like, I am wishing I could cut the buttons off the top of my shirt to get closer to the ground and my face, like just completely in the dirt and bullets peppering around me. And I, I see like some of my instructors faces like saying to me, Kevin, be careful what you wish for. And I'm like, yeah, Yeah. okay. I get it now, guys. I get it. Uh, But to your point about COVID too, I mean, I, I see a lot of people wishing away this year and you know, from someone who has been at points where he thought he was on his deathbed, I'll tell you one thing, man, you will, not be wishing away any time. And you will very much wish that you had more time. And uh, this, is, this has been a tough year for everybody. There's no doubt my family's lost people due to the coronavirus, but uh, it's been a year of incredible personal growth for me and for my family. It's really a matter of kind of how your perspective and how you look at things. But I would really urge people to never, never wish away time and to figure out, what you can do to make that situation
0: as best that you can, and to learn from that and gain some personal growth from it. Don't just like uh, hole up and wait for it to be over. Deal with it head on. Yeah, get get into that
1: uncomfortable situation and learn.
0: Like, mm. get out
1: there and get after it and like, confront it. Like, what's making you uncomfortable about all this? Right? Like, what is up? Like, is it the uncertainty? Is it all these other things? And. uh, I don't know. It's been a it's been a good year for me in terms of a lot of personal growth and and
0: reflecting on things. So when you go get the first group, you guys have some pretty interesting trips over to Asia, uh, including to the Philippines where there is conflict, which a lot of people don't know about. So you start talking about your uh, I guess your trips when you get to group, and then. I've heard that you had some kind of insane operational tempo where you're going to Afghanistan, you're coming back, you're going to Asia, you're coming back, going straight to Afghanistan. So, what did that all look like? Yeah.
1: I graduated, I got my Green Beret one year and 363 days from the first day I joined the Army. Like, that includes basic training, airborne school, everything. I would finish a school on a Friday, I'd start another one on a Monday. It's not that like I never recycled. It's not that I was that good. You know, believe me, on my best day, I was like an average green beret. But uh, it was just I got lucky, right? Nobody, nobody saw me making the mistakes that would have would have would have recycled me. So it's better to be lucky than good. And I finished in uh, April. Reported the group in May. By I think June or July, I was in the Philippines on my first trip uh, for like a month and a half. Mission to just train the Filipino army. And at the time. I was on the B team, which the B team supports the six other A teams, the operational attachment alphas in the company. so I was new to the company. they put me right on the B team, and you know said, "Hey, man, you, you went to college, you're smart, you'll figure this out right so it's typically a, a role held by a uh, Sergeant first Class who's been in the Army for like you know ten years or something like that. Uh, so here's me two years in uh, you know doing this role here, but that was like my kind of my trial by fire an introduction to like what it means to be a special forces soldier and what it means to be an engineer in a third world country. Mm-hmm. So that, that role kind of thrust me into a position in which I had to interface quite a bit with the Filipino army in terms of orchestrating supply and logistics runs and, and getting people on and off the base, making sure we had clean water, making sure we had water, um, sure like just the, like the toilets are functioning, all these things that you kind of take for granted, but and you, it can typically happen at a faster speed in the United States, but in a third world, it's just going to happen at a slower rate. And so kind of learning like what that tempo looked like, learning how to work with another military, another government that had a completely different culture than me and like trying to kind of hone like what that skill set looks like. Uh, was incredibly valuable on that deployment. And then also got a chance to work with some of the Filipino soldiers to start working with a foreign force and, and you know make mistakes and seeing what was working and what resonated with them. And while we were there, we got the WARNO for folks listening to warning orders, basically got the heads up that we were going to Afghanistan four months after we got back. And so the first half of the trip was, you know, we were working hard, but and it was fun, but then it took a different tone halfway through that because it's like, all right, well, we're going to Afghanistan and, you know, we're going to kind of transition a little bit and start training here for it. So I had had the opportunity to do a lot of training for that. And it was a great way to kind of break into the SF lifestyle rather than go directly to Afghanistan. we get home from that and kind of start prepping. I'm on the B team the whole time. Uh, I got to go to a school or a couple schools actually and maybe a month and a half before we're supposed to deploy they uh like hey look uh this guy on on 1316 which is my, my team number he got hurt you, you're gonna go to 1316 for the deployment so we are like getting ready to go to afghanistan and uh i'm this new cherry guy who hasn't trained at all my team you know i gotta go down to the team room i knock on the door and say hey you know well, most of the guys knew who i was but you know i'm Sergeant like I'm, I'm here to be your your junior eighteen, Charlie. See, and you know I get there. We, we palletize our gear, and we head to Afghanistan. And I open up my gun box for the first time when I get in the mazar Sharif, and I zero my gun that day in Afghanistan. And I've never been a part of anything that was such a trial by fire than that first deployment. You know, the first mission we go on. That's the first time I ever worked with this team. I didn't even know how to talk on the radio. I'd never talked on radios like that, like with the team. Like, um, you know, I, I was setting up my night vision, uh, as soon as I got to Afghanistan, like it was crazy. Uh, the first live fire exercise I did with my team was a five hour firefight. You know, they'd be like, Hey Kevin, you're on the 50 cal tomorrow. And I'd raise my hand. Like, I don't know how to load a 50 cal. We didn't do it at basic training. I didn't do it at SUT. I didn't go to PMT or anything with you guys. Like, like I've never, I, I've, I fired off like a 10 round burst of 50 cal basic training and that's it. Uh, I learned how to drive a Humvee in Afghanistan. I'd never driven one before learned how to drive stick shift. Uh, so luckily for me, I had an awesome team that uh, saw potential in me, knew that I didn't know anything, but I also was smart enough to know that I didn't know anything. And was just going to like hang on every one of their words. And those guys really took me underneath their belt. So that, that deployment was up to Kunduz in the Northern part of Afghanistan. We worked with the Afghan commandos and it it was interesting. There was a lot of growing pains for my team. Now my team previously had rotated to Iraq quite a bit is the way they used to break the groups down, like first group, 10th group and fifth group would rotate to Iraq, third and seventh would rotate to Afghanistan. There's come 2009, 2010, they're starting to surge, you know, pull back Iraq, surge Afghanistan. And so my team, this is, we had one guy on our team who had been to Afghanistan before. Uh, everybody else had multiple Iraq deployments, but it's, it's a completely different ball game. And so it was just learning this new culture, these new customs, this new terrain, this new way to fight was kind of challenging, I think, for all of us. And at the time, too, in 2010, the focus of the wars were down in Kandahar and Helmand. We're up in the north. People just assume it's safe up there, and uh, it, it wasn't. Right? It, it really, there was a, there was some some bad stuff brewing up there at the time. But what that meant for us was, you know, we really didn't have the support that we needed to do our job. In Northern Afghanistan, the way that this broken out, you know, at the time, it was 600 miles from tip to tip, right? From Badakhshan Province that touches China to out to Faryab Province that touches like Turkmenistan and Iran we didn't have air assets for this first deployment to actually like cover that ground, um, and do that commando mission. Uh, we didn't have like, running water for our base for five months and electricity and these things. Like we just, the focus was not there uh, with it, which made it, I think a pr- you know, for me as a Charlie, a very frustrating deployment. I think even for the team of like understanding what we were capable of doing, what we could do if we had the proper support that deployment was seven months. We got home on a Friday. We came back on a Monday and they're like, all right, good job, boys. Like you're going back to Afghanistan again in seven months. <laughs> so, like, you know, expletives spewing out of my mouth, like seeing my wife, like signing divorce papers, <laughs> like, uh, and you know, <laughs> like, like a week or two later, like, Hey, yeah. And by the way, guys, we, we need you to go to Thailand for about five weeks. Uh, you know, like yeah, I'm like, slowly, you know, losing my mind here. And and then, hey, this is what the PMT schedule is going to look like. And so, you know, young staff sergeant flight puts it all on a calendar. And I'm like, look, we're going to be home for like three months, four months and two years. Um, And and by the way, too, like this second Afghanistan deployment was was an 11-month deployment. Like that's the longest special operations deployment of the GWAT. And like, not to mention, we were just in Afghanistan. So I would spend yeah. 18 out of 24 months doing movement to contacts with the Afghan commandos in northern Afghanistan. And a lot of those guys too, on my team and in the company, they had been in Iraq, like for nine months prior to those Afghanistan deployments. So it, it was a, the op tempo was pretty crushing um, for the morale and for the
0: company. And you didn't have, uh, you didn't have kids at this point? Uh, but how's your, how's your wife dealing with this? Like what what were some of those, I'm sure there were some colorful conversations there. Yeah.
1: Before I left for Afghanistan that first time, my wife is, is, you know, one of the bravest and strongest people I know. And her stubbornness is what has kept this together, kept me together, kept our relationship together. This is a lifestyle she'd never wanted. She begged me not to do it. Um, It's just, it's just, it's, it's not a great lifestyle for a spouse. You're just never home. And when I was home, it was very hard for me to separate work from being at home. And I I brought that home with me quite a bit. Before I went on the first deployment, it was really, I I so hard for her. Um, Like one night I found her crying in the closet. She would just do that at night while I was sleeping. And I really started to show me the emotional toll that it was taking on her. I did a terrible job on that first deployment communicating back home with her. Awful. Um, it was, I just took everything for granted. I was really busy all the time. Didn't fully understand for her what it's like to like have a husband that goes to work every day and you don't know if he's going to come home. And I actually had an incident at the end of that deployment. It was two weeks before I was supposed to go home. We were doing our first helicopter assault of the deployment. Uh, into a highly contested Taliban-held area. it was. A, we were going to have to do a daytime uh, insertion because it was a brand-new helicopter crew that couldn't fly at night. The temperatures were upwards of 130 degrees that day. Uh, we got into a 10-hour firefight. I got trapped on a mountaintop. I, every time I moved, there was like a hail of gunfire from the village, and I was sitting there thinking to myself, like, wow, you're, you're probably going to die today. And I started to ask myself a series of questions at like 26 years old that you wouldn't normally ask yourself. I asked myself if I was a good person, if I was a good man, did I live my life the way I want to all those things. And I didn't like the answers I got back. It was because I took everything for granted. Right. I took, I always thought there'd be another time, right. There'd be that next time to tell someone you love them, to tell them how much you cared for them to have that next experience. And I was like, yeah, man, like, now your time's up like you woke up for the last time today oh. and that was you know people say kevin like what's the worst thing that can happen to you in life And i'm like it's it's not what you think about it's 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 not what you worry about it's not money it's not in your job it's It's when you have this conversation with yourself on what you perceive to be your deathbed and you don't like the answers you get back like that will i was panic stricken right uh terrified Uh, the grace of God got off of that mountaintop. I mean, it was such a crazy day that when the helicopters landed, the the Taliban came up, like occupied our fighting position, started firing at us. I go off, I fire off like a magazine at these guys while people are loading behind me. The team sergeant grabs me by the gear, throws me on the helicopter. and We fly away like it's a damn movie scene. But that day shaped, it changed things for me. It showed me, that I couldn't take things for granted. And I sh- it showed me also like what that effect was having on my wife and other people that I loved. So when we came home for that second, from in the, you know, the middle of the deployment, I, I did best efforts, right. To try to spend as much time as I could and make it be meaningful. Uh, I didn't do a great job, right. I, I was very stressed out about the upcoming deployment. I had a really, yeah you know, at the time like post-traumatic stress that I, I didn't realize I was having I was drinking a lot. My wife calls it the dark winter. because so I was drinking so much, but I tried as much as I could. And then when I went on the second deployment, I, I made significant bit more strides to communicate with her, to communicate back home with people and just not take anything for granted, even like my interactions with my teammates and things like that. So it yeah. was not, uh, not an easy life for my wife to do, but She's tough and she's strong. She held it all together. And the way that she got through everything was to just make herself super busy. So the whole time I'm, I'm off playing Green Beret, she's earning her second master's in nursing. And, you know, to her credit, man, I got shot. She got informed. The next day, she went on a job interview at a hospital and got the job. Like, Oh, Jesus. That, that is just the type of
0: <laughs> woman that she is here. So Oh, yeah. I know there's research that says as young people, we regret things that we did. And as old people, we regret things that we didn't do. And that's what uh, your time on the, on the hilltop made me think of uh, You're, you know, you're 26, but if you're thinking you're near the end of your life, you're probably thinking about the stuff that you didn't do. Right? Yeah. I remember like one of my distinct
1: thoughts was like, I didn't have kids at the time. and I really wanted kids. I was like, man, I'm never going to have kids again, or, or, well, never have kids. And so now right, to have two kids, right, that's, that's pretty awesome. I got to, sometimes I got to, you know, when they're really pissing me off, got to remind myself of that time on the mountaintop when, when I felt very bad about not having those kids there.
0: Yeah. So you go on to your second Afghan deployment, and there's a few things, right? So now you've got like the combat veteran status, right? So there's probably, or they may have been guys that come to your team that weren't on the last trip or new guys that didn't have that experience. And then there's the other thing is that you went back to the same region. So you're you're familiar with it, but maybe it's changed a little bit. Did you get to work with some of the same people? How did that second trip compare to the first? Second trip was night and day. And it was awesome.
1: It was everything I dreamed about in terms of being a green beret. We had most of the same leadership, like the same captain, the same warrant officer. Incredible. We got a new team sergeant. He was actually my small unit tactics instructor. He came in and people are like, well, what's he like? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I hope he treats me better (laughs) than he did as a student. (laughs) And, uh, I remember one night he left us out in the cold and it was like 33 degrees and raining. And it's, you're just like, you're wishing it would drop below freezing so it would snow instead of rain on you. And uh, I was like, man, yeah, someday, like if I'm going to kick his ass. And I remember telling him about that. And he's like, well, whenever you want a shot, come after it. Like, I was like, no, nah, I think I'm good. Thank you. Um, so he came to the team and, and that was a good shot in the arm. On the same token, um, we got some new guys on the team too. Some of them didn't have any combat experience, but uh, they were good, stellar guys, and we just had awesome NCOs on the team. that were like ready to take these guys underneath their wing. That was great. We had new, some new blood, and just felt very good about going back into this situation. And from the reports we were getting from the team, we were ripping out with like like they were actually getting support, getting like aviation support, and getting help, um, you know, supplies and logistics. And we were had the great fortune to fall back in on another our on our base. Right. I, I slept in the same bed that I built on <laughs> the previous deployment. We're working with the same guys that we trained. So that, I mean, that's awesome. Right. If you got to go back like that, like that's great. We hit the like day one. It was like, we never left. We hit the ground running and we had all of the assets that we needed. But yeah, you know, as you guys know, right. Like there's nothing in life. free. Right. If you're going to get everything you've been asking for, then you better perform. And it kind of give an idea of that. We ran more missions in our first three months of that deployment than the previous team had ran in, in seven or eight months. I think kind of the expectations that were, that were laid upon us. And especially at the time, we were the only commandos in northern Afghanistan. And so because of that, we had a ton of ground to cover there. So this deployment was like night and day difference. We were getting, they they realized the severity of the situation in Northern Afghanistan and gave us all the assets and resources that we really needed to uh, get the job done. And so I loved it. Like that deployment was great. The op tempo was insane. You know, we were out the door all the time, 24, 72 hours, at least twice a week. And they want more. And I'm like, guys, the math doesn't work out. We can't go. You know, there's only seven days in a week. I don't know what else you want us to do. Uh, And essentially, we were doing two deployments, right, back-to-back. Like, how is our equipment going to hold up? How are our bodies going to hold up? How are our minds going to hold up? But the the deployment was great, and it it just really took off. I think one of the big things that I took away from that first deployment is I didn't do a great job building rapport with the commandos that I was working with. And I really tried to focus on that on that second deployment. So, like, they love
0: professional wrestling. They love John Cena. Yeah, it's it's, crazy, right? Wild, wild. They love. They love bodybuilding and they love WWE. There would be
1: pictures of like murals to John Cena in downtown Kunduz, like with a bodybuilder next to it. And so I love professional wrestling also. Like, you know, it was any oh, young, yeah. young boy brought up on it. Right. I was a Hulkamaniac and in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. I had like long blonde hair and a beard. I had about 40 more pounds of muscle on me. And my wife sent me over Hulk Hogan outfit. And then my mom was; she kept all my wrestling stuff. She sent me all my like my like wrestling ring, my wrestling buddies, like all the figurines, everything, right? And uh, and it ran my in my belt. And so I would like challenge these guys to wrestling matches all the time, and like they thought it was real. They'd be like hitting me with steel chairs and stuff like that. <laughs> like, but so this was an awesome way to build rapport with these dudes. And I would just spend time like that. And they'd teach me Dari. Right, that was a big thing. I reversed the roles of, of teacher and student, and that helped out quite a bit. So they did a better job of that, and then like the training took off, the missions took off, and it was shaping up to be a really good deployment.
0: What, uh, what kind of missions are you doing with these guys? I guess to add some uh, context or detail for like non-military yep. people.
1: So the Afghan commandos are like a light infantry unit um, modeled after like the United States Army Rangers you know, these were great guys, very elite. Uh, but I think for everybody to understand, like their best guy, their absolute best commando would probably be like an average United States infantryman. Right. So it, it's like, wh- what I had to really start to understand was that no one was going to get up to the expectations of like a green beret of the guys on my team. And when I realized that I, I kind of like decompressed with the situation and understood like, all right, my role and my job is to get these guys up to 100% of their personal ability. Like, that's my responsibility as a Green Beret. And I also just have to understand they're going to do what they're going to do. Right, they're going to smoke pot on missions, <laughs> they're going to like do some crazy stuff. And you just kind of have to take it and, and, and roll with the punches on it. Um, So the the mission sets that we were doing with them at the time, you know, this is back in 2011, I'm sure things have changed quite a bit over the years, but uh, we do a lot of valley clearing operations. So we would start at one end of the valley and just walk through that valley and visit all of the houses and mud huts and villages clustered along the way, talk to people and see like weapons caches and and all these things, collect intel. We'd get picked up anywhere between one to three days later. Some other ones that we would do is, you know, we'd say, hey, there's like a high value target in this area. And we'd land at night and just start searching the village immediately. Occupy that village and try to find the individual in there you know, a little bit shorter duration, maybe like 12 to 24 hour type of mission. And even from that to like some, some even shorter hits um, that we would do if if somebody was, was popping up and we needed to go to this place you you go, you're in, you're out as fast as you possibly can be with the people there. I think it's important for other people to, to understand too, right? If you're walking through this valley, if you're going to this village, right? You don't dictate the terms, like how the fight begins, That's always dictated by the enemy, for the most
0: part, right? So that's almost like this disadvantage that you're walking into the situation. It's like the difference between a raid and a movement to contact. It's kind of like playing white or black in chess. Yeah. Hey, this is Matt, and we usually do a support segment here, but we're going to forgo that for something a little more important right now. On January 12th, I picked up a copy of the book called Three Wise Men, which as the cover says is about a Navy SEAL, a Green Beret, and how their Marine brother became a war's sole survivor. That Green Beret, Ben Wise, was teammates with Kevin and was killed in action just months after Kevin was wounded. In the years following, Kevin worked with Ben's brother Beau and family to enrich his story through first-hand account. I was happy to have Kevin on the show so close to the book's release. I'm recording these voiceovers on January 14th and already encouraging our listeners to pick up their own copy of Three Wise Men by Bo Wise and Tom Cilio. I think it's important we learn just how much this family sacrificed for us. I can also personally testify that the men of ODA 1316, who took the fight to northern Afghanistan, are the truest of Green Berets, they're patriots, and they're all-American badasses. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. So we've listened to some other stuff or read some stuff that you put out. So at the time when you got injured, which we could certainly talk about, one of your Afghans actually the guy who dragged you to safety. Is that right? Yeah. It was September twenty-fifth, two thousand eleven,
1: and it was a, a valley clearing operation. And, you know, within an hour of this mission, the machine guns start going off, RPGs start landing, near ambush one of my teammates. One of the commandos gets hit right in the crossfire, luckily it doesn't die. And I mean, when you start, first start hearing kind of like bullets like that, like you just don't know, right? It could be 20 seconds, it could be 20 minutes, it could be hours. And at the time, you're like, ah, all right, well, we ended up dropping bombs on that location. And once the bombs dropped, you're like, well, that's, that's probably it for the day. That was kind of the excitement, and we'll continue clearing and get picked up and do this again in a couple of days. But that really only served to embolden the enemy that day. And this turned out to be, you know, a near like ten hour firefight of just moving back and forth in this valley. And I think what's important for people who've never been in a situation like this to understand is that it's not like this Black Hawk down movie scene where there's just bullets ripping all the time and, and you'd be out of ammunition in like ten minutes. Right. If it was yeah. like that. Like you know, you said it earlier, like it's like a chess match. Right. there was like a chess match like happening in this valley of like maneuvering and, and and moving different pieces here and there and moving guys on ridge lines and okay now we need to take a break right here and the fire dies down it's like time for everybody to take a little siesta and then it picks back up again and uh yeah this is kind of like the, the, the nature of it and in the 10th hour of that i was i went around the corner of the building and uh I felt like I got hit in the stomach with a sledgehammer and I just got lifted off of my feet. My body slams off the ground and uh, had to take everything in my power to keep my composure to, to not pass out from the pain and was able to uh, call my teammates, gave them my location and had this tense pain in my leg. So I, I thought I got shot in the leg too. And when you think you got shot in the leg, like what, the first thing that comes to your mind is like, dude, your, your femoral artery has been hit. Right. And so, I was like, you got, you got a couple minutes to live, so let's go. And started to try to find where the bleeding was coming from, patting up and down my leg, figure out where to put a tourniquet. But there wasn't any bleeding there. And it just saw like a little bit of blood on my stomach. Uh, from the bullet had went through right underneath my body armor. And what it ended up doing was it hit my femoral nerve, paralyzed my left leg. That's why I had so much pain in my leg, and it fractured my hip. So really, it was nothing I could do at that point, except for sit out in the open and wait for my team to get to me. But the fight would have picked up pretty intensely at that point. Those guys were pinned down, trying to maneuver to me. And I get back on the radio. I call him again. I'm like, I I'm like swearing. <laughs> like you guys better get to me. Right? Like this is, yeah. this is bad. And uh, I look up and the day Lee bear, like the meaning of it, like just occurred to me in that moment of, I look up, I see this guy who has spent two years training, He runs out into the open, risks his life, grabs me by my body armor and the bullets are kind of flying around us and uh, gets me behind some cover. And so for me, like that showed me like, all right, that that's, that's the meaning of of DOL. And that is like, you've spent your time wisely
0: in the past two years. If uh, a guy's going to do that for you. So can you like feel your legs at this point? You just need someone to drag you off or what's going through your head? Yeah, I mean, I, I get dragged back there. and the pain is
1: excruciating. The first guy to me was um we had two two squads eighty second airborne guys attached to us and they're platoon sergeant. Unbeknownst to me at the time, a couple deployments prior, he had a soldier with a similar gunshot wound die in his arms. Uh, and he's there, gunshot wound to the stomach. He cranks down on it as hard as he can. When I have a broken hip, <laughs> so I'm like screaming at the time. Uh, then my my teammates begin to flood in and start working on me. Uh, guys are going up to the medic and they're like, "Hey, look, is Kevin going to make it or not?" And I'm like, "He's like, I don't know. It looks pretty bad, but it, I can hear all of these conversations going on. I'm laying on the ground. And I'm like, oh my gosh. The guys coming up to me, telling me they love me. Guys who hadn't paid me a compliment in years, and yeah, you know, the tears in their eyes. And I'm like, wow, this is this is it. Like, this is You've had some close calls but but this is these are your last last moments here on this earth, and really um honestly, I felt at peace with it because uh i I think it was because of that experience on the mountaintop that I had, and learning from that and doing my best to try to to take advantage of everything in life and so I was sad right I was sad that I wouldn't see my wife again, but on the same token, I also uh was ready to go if need be there. Uh, so my teammates stabilized me. They got me on a uh, stretcher. They're carrying me through, uh, open fields, receiving fire, returning fire and finally get me on a helicopter and 15 minute ride to the surgery tent. A surgeon starts to work on me prepping. He's asking me questions. He's like, do you have any last requests? And I was like, yeah, man, save the bullet if you can. And I'm going to die. So I need my last rights. So uh, you know, I'll never forget that mask coming down on my face and asking God for forgiveness for my sins and uh, saying goodbye to this world.
0: How long were you out for? I was out
1: for about four days, and I woke up in really? yeah, yeah. I woke up in Germany. Actually, had no clue where I was, no clue what was going on. Uh, super confusing. My stomach's been cut open. I have tubes hanging out of every orifice of my body, and. Just yeah, just trying to piece, and I'm out of intense pain. my last memories of being in Afghanistan, honestly, like that was something that took me years to get over, the bitterness that I felt towards people in my unit and in my company for not sending someone to be with me when I woke up in Germany, uh, with my stomach cut open and two hanging out of my body and not knowing
0: where I was. Because that was probably the scariest moment of my life. So you just wake up, hospital room ceiling, machines, and you—what are you like? Hey, is anybody there? Where the fuck am I? Yeah, and so in my mind, like I was on. 20. Like that's terrible, dude. It's it's awful. Like it's the. I,
1: I Yeah, it's like it took me years to get over my anger towards people for that and their explanations as to why that took place. But in my mind, right, like I was on a lot of drugs and very confused. I thought, and, and I didn't, the nurses that I had, uh, they had darker skin. And so in my mindset of like, I'm on drugs, like, I don't know what's going on. My last memory is being in a field hospital. I literally yeah. thought that the field hospital had been overrun and I was like being held captive at the time. Um, just like in the, in the in the state that I was in, like that was right. terrifying right. to me, terrifying. Until like you know, I, I finally see somebody in the uniform, I'd be like screaming for them to help me. And the nurse that I had actually at the time, like, tried to threaten me that I was going to go to like the psychiatric ward if I didn't calm down. <laughs> I'm like, man, I don't, know. It's like, I don't know what's going on here, man. It's like, <laughs> you know, so. Pretty tough to to be in that situation. Um and luckily for me, a buddy of mine who had gotten hit with two grenades and had gotten shot uh, honestly almost a year to the day earlier, he was there, another SF guy. He comes in, he gives a little chit chat, and he looks me in the eyes and he's like, Hey man, look, plenty of people have been shot. Don't be a fucking pussy about this. <laughs> well, I'm in intensive care. And that was uh that was some good advice, man. And I needed to hear it from him. I I probably couldn't have heard it from anybody else.
0: I didn't need people feeling sorry for me. I definitely didn't need to feel sorry for myself. I got to tell you that, so I was a medic in SF and you never know what you're dealing with with a gunshot to the abdomen. The fact that you're out for four days leads me to believe there were some interesting interventions that went on you know, during those four days, or do they just keep you asleep because of the pain and and it was easier to manage you? Like what, if it's not too gruesome or anything, what all got ripped up in there? Yeah. So I was intubated.
1: Um, I think that that might've been part of the reason why, and they had to keep my stomach open because they had to keep doing the wound washouts. I think they did like the sig sigmoidectomy. Is that, uh, so with, with the
0: colon, um, re- I'm re- not that good of a medic, so I can't tell you,
1: yeah, <laughs> so. I, I'm a, i am I say I'm an amateur medical so. professional now after all my experience, yeah. <laughs> my wife's a nurse. So I, uh, I lean on that. Um, but yeah, okay. you know, I ha- had to take that out. I mean, I was lucky they were able to reconnect my colon. I didn't have to have a bag or anything like that. I think that, you know, they wanted to keep me under probably from like the transport from the field hospital to Herat, Herat to Bagram, Bagram to Germany. And then also the fact that my stomach is open. He did, I think, five surgeries down at the initial one, and then four subsequent wound
0: washouts to make sure they didn't have sepsis with it. Because, it, I mean, letting your guts go inside your abdomen, like it's just a dirty job, right? Yeah, and I think because it hit the colon too, I think sepsis was, was the big thing that they were worried about with that. So if we start talking about the recovery, at some point you have to get from Germany back to the States, and then how, how are your, you know, like, how's your lower body doing now? How are your legs doing? You said that you had some intense pain on the battlefield. And yeah. Are you ambulatory? Does it take you a while to get back to walking? So you know, I went to, to Brook army medical center for a week
1: in San Antonio, or actually I was there for about two weeks and I desperately tried to get out of there as fast as possible to get back to first group. I think that they were very happy to see me leave, you know, as I'm, long hair, beard, yelling at people, telling them I'm a Green Beret, I'll do whatever I want around here, you know, being, being a terrible patient, essentially. Uh, yeah. just, just trying to get them to get me out of there as fast as possible. They, they were incredible staff there, though, at Brook Army. And got back up to first group and just really started to kind of get after it. My stomach healed, my hip healed. I had incredible people at the Thor 3 facility, but my left leg had atrophied to the point that it was the size of my left arm. And the neurologists at the army, the Washington university of Washington that are like There's nothing we could do. Maybe you can try the Mayo clinic in Minnesota. And so tried out the Mayo clinic. They were working on experimental surgery that I could benefit from, uh, but it was extensive, right? Like I had to have my stomach cut open again. They cut the damaged part of the nerve out and they took a nerve from my left leg, which essentially would be like the railroad tracks. Like it's like replacing the railroad ties to try to get that connectivity going again. Hmm. And they did it. Um, but man, like true to that surgeon's word, nothing happened for a long time. Um, it took six months for me to finally see a muscle twitch in my thigh. You know, and over the course of 18 months, I was able to finally get my leg to be at full, do a full extension. Like, and then that just starts the whole process of, okay, now you have full range of motion and extension. Now you have to unlearn all the bad habits that you learned to walk, right? Because I was walking, with no quad <laughs> like with no your, your body's amazing it'll, it'll learn pretty quickly what, what it needs to do
0: what kind of odds did they tell you when they were talking about the surgery they were very much like look
1: this is incredibly experimental mm-hmm. like we can't even give you odds because we just don't mm-hmm. know they were the only people in the country that would take my case at the time so it was something where like the thought of having to start my physical therapy back from day one do this invasive surgery It was, it was not something I wanted to do. Like it sent chills through my spine, but I I also knew I needed to kind of walk away from this whole situation, knowing that I did everything that I possibly could to to make myself better. And I thought too, I was like, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Maybe if you, you're the first person on the books with this thing, then maybe somebody else can benefit from it. So yeah, no odds, nothing. Just like uh, maybe this will work and maybe it won't, but probably not.
0: And so they put in, as you said, basically like replacing a section of railroad to try to connect your nerves. And are you just going on faith and time to see that muscle twitch? Faith and time, but also the incredible people at Thor 3. They're
1: like, look, man, we're used to torn ACLs and sprained ankles. So this is all new territory here for us.
0: Thor 3 is like the, uh, the SF group or battalion level physical performance center, right? Yeah. And would work with these
1: guys hours each day. And so what we just tried to do is we would try to, to mimic the motions as much as we possibly could. Right. So like I would do a leg press with both legs and in my mind, like I'm telling both legs that they're working. So Mm -hmm. you're doing, you're, you're trying to do everything you possibly can to mimic doing like, like your leg works. And telling you, you're telling it that it works. You're trying to get that brain, that connectivity going again. So, like, if if you can't do a pull up, you you have a band and you do assisted pull ups, right? So, like, what we would do is, like, I couldn't do full leg extensions. So, we would do like assisted leg extensions. I'd be doing that, like, getting that range of motion, telling my body to do it. And we just got creative, man. I mean, they kept me motivated, man, because it was not easy (laughs) to come in there every day and, and not
0: see the results that you would normally get from putting in that much effort. It's got to be frustrating, especially for a Green Beret and a former athlete. Right. I mean, you're, I'm
1: a guy who played college football, was a Green Beret, prided myself on my physical fitness. Like, you know, I say like the the 30 mile trek to end selection, I finished in first place. Second place came 30 minutes after me. That was me, right? That's who I was. And now I need help putting on my socks. Like if I need my couch moving a buddy to come over and do it for me. And so, you know, while this medical miracle is occurring in terms of my leg, like my mental and emotional state is really beginning to deteriorate. And right when I had to go to the Mayo Clinic, my teammate, Ben Wise, was killed like two weeks before the team was supposed to come home, right? There's one firefight that my team got into that I wasn't a part of in two Afghanistan deployments, and like one of my best friends gets killed in it. And emotionally for me, you know, that was a lot to deal with. You know, we had three guys get killed on the deployment. We had another guy kill himself as soon as he got home. Um, saw a lot of guys kind of lives unraveling after the deployment and uh, just spent a lot of time wondering why me, like, why did I survive? Right. Um, I'm in huh. intense pain all the time. Like, is this really worth a, like me surviving, questioning God and uh, this you know, really began to abuse like the prescription meds and, and alcohol until my wife, that tough New Englander, right? She uh, sits me down one day and she's like, dude, is this it, man? <laughs> is this what you're going to do with your life? And, you know, she invokes the name of Ben Wise and Wyatt Goldsmith and Michael Hosey, like these guys that got killed in employment. She's like, you think you're going to like honoring these guys by doing this? And uh, I mean, that was the angriest I'd ever been with her, but that's she was right. And that was the spark for the transition right there like that's the moment that uh, i began really getting ready to to make the move
0: i think that survivor's guilt is is one of those things that a lot of us have to deal with and saying like you know why did i make it and other people's and other people didn't on top of that like <laughs> you got dealt a shit hand anyway right because yeah. i mean you, you didn't get out unscathed yourself At the point where you're doing physical therapy, you're starting to think career-wise, are you thinking I'm gonna be able to rejoin a team or has someone told you it's over or are you starting to think like, I'm not gonna be able to be a Green Greenberry anymore? I think you, people very intuitively know their
1: bodies. And I was just like, like once my leg like dissipated to, to nothing, And it was going to do an experimental surgery. I'm like, all right, I think your time on a team is over, man. Which it's kind of like hard for some people to think about because they'll be like, well, there's amputees on teams. And, and I would, I would, I would say that to myself and I'd compare that to other people. And, but it was like, you know, your situations, it's just different, right? Like you have this leg that is significantly smaller and not anywhere near as strong as your other leg you can't go to the VA and get a new leg. That's the one you have. So I kind of think like, kind of coming to grips with that because people will see me and they're like, "Yeah, hey, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong with you. <laughs> like if I have like a pair of pants on or something. And, uh, so I, I knew I was like my, my time on the teams was, was, uh, was over. Group was great. So like, Hey, look, man, we love you. You do great work here. We want to keep you some capacity, but I, I don't to been in for six years, 14 more years of riding a desk. Like it was like, if I'm going to do that, I I want to do it in the business world. And, I had to have this big, huge goal at the end of the tunnel. And for me, it was to go to a top-tier graduate school. Like that, that was what was going to motivate me to stay off my pain meds, to get up every morning, and to just get after it. Like that's who I am as a person. I need to have a huge goal and a big light at the end of the tunnel to, to go after. Like, like that's what gets me going, like to be a Green Beret. Right? To, so for me, it was that, was to, to, go to, these, to go to these graduate schools. At the time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do professionally. Like I just had this goal of going to these grad schools, probably just to, to fulfill my ego, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, and like, it, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to, to go to these places and I knew that I needed that to get better. Uh, so I, I applied to three schools, which I didn't even tell all veterans, if you're gonna to apply to graduate school, you should apply to more than three. And the three shouldn't be MIT, Harvard, Uh, Business School and Harvard Kennedy School, because there's a high likelihood you might not get into any of those three. But, you know, in my hubris at the time, (laughs) I'll have to choose between these three because I'll get into all of them, right? (laughs) Turns out I I wasn't the special flower that I thought that I was. And I got denied from both Harvards, and I got waitlisted at MIT. And so I bought a plane ticket from Seattle to Boston. and flew across the country and walked up to the admissions office with MIT and, uh, you know, once they took their finger off the like call police button, just uh, <laughs> weirdo walking in there, uh, you know, I thanked them for my spot on the wait list. And then we sat down and talked about what I needed to do to get in. And three months later, I got in off the wait list. And then I swallowed my pride. I reapplied to the Harvard Kennedy School that fall and I got accepted to the Harvard Kennedy School to, to do the dual master's program between MIT and Harvard.
0: What was it? Was it test scores or is it just the insanity of, the other people applying to those schools? Uh, probably a little bit of everything. I mean, you
1: know, my, I say somebody has got to hold up the left side of the curve and I'm always happy to do that. With my GPA, with my test scores and, uh, yeah, I think that I just wanted to make sure that I fit into the school. I didn't do a lot of research on the place. I didn't really visit the place. Hadn't talked to a lot of. It was like this wild card. It was a joke between my wife and I. Like, oh yeah, we'll apply to MIT. Whoa, like nah. <laughs> you know, because we wanted to be in, we wanted to be in the Boston area. <laughs> yeah. So like, what turned out as a joke turned out to be probably one of the best things I've ever done in my life. How did you like the dual masters? It was awesome, but it was intense. I mean, when school is in session, I was at the library seven days a week because you're, you're you're fitting four years of credits into three years. But for me, it was good because it gave me a little bit more time to think about what I wanted to do. I got to do two internships. The business school aspect was so intense; it was so foreign to me. I had no real business background, no math background. So, like that was that first year was brutal. Like I never wanted to quit anything more than that first year of business school. Uh, the Kennedy School was more like a breath of fresh air for me because I was a poli-sci guy, like really kind of got into the government aspect of things. And it was also really cool because one of the things I was struggling with was like, well, I, I can't be a Green anymore. I, well, I can't serve anymore. And like in my naive mind, I thought, well, the only way to serve is to be in the military. But when I got to the Kennedy School, I saw a number of people that had devoted their life to service and didn't necessarily have to be in the military. And so I think it opened my eyes to the work that other people were doing to make the world a better place. But in the same token, it also showed me that there's a multitude of other ways for you to serve this country, your fellow man in this world. And so I think that, that was probably the, the biggest lesson I got out of going to the Kennedy School.
0: So, I mean, what kind of examples did you see? Like public service, nonprofit? I mean, well, your your wife is a nurse, right? Yeah, so, you know, mean, right in front of you, but I understand what you say about, you know, I think like the only way to serve, maybe the only way for me to serve is to be like this warrior and, and fighter and going overseas. So as you start to contemplate your next step in your professional career, how do you kind of move on from this thing that you've wanted to do for so long and you got to do? Yeah,
1: well, I also have to say for my wife, not only is she a nurse, but she's getting her PhD right now in nursing to focus on uh, homelessness and issues with that. So even more selfless service right right there for you. You know, honestly, I think I, I'm, still, I'm still working on moving on from my time on the teams. You know, I have, I have no shame in admitting that. It's hard because it's something I wanted to do since I was 14 years old and I did it and I had a great experience with it. I think I served on like the best special forces team that ever was with like the best guys that ever were. So that's something I've been working on quite a bit in terms of like taking that experience for what it was, but not always uh, using that to evaluate everything and and not living so much in the past. Right. Because my greatest fear in life is to say that like that I peaked at 27 uh, when I was a green beret. So, you know, what I thought about going forward was, uh, you know, my, my first job out of grad school was with Goldman Sachs. I worked there for two years in the investment management division. And what I really wanted to do was show people that I could just make this transition out of the military. And right? I wanted to show people like whenever they'd be, oh, you should try this because you were good at it in the military. Be like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And so I thought like finance was like <laughs> a complete 180 to being in the military. And uh, I, I just wanted to try something different. I wanted to get uncomfortable. I wanted to learn these skill sets and it did. It made me uncomfortable I learned a lot of different skill sets, but I found myself really missing a lot of things from the military, Uh, like leading teams, right? finance is not typically, it's more of an individual contributor type of job. And Goldman was great. They do great things for veterans. It's an amazing place to do finance, but it just wasn't the job for me. And so I began to think about, like, all right, well, what did I love about being a Green Beret? I like leading, I like mentoring, I like motivating, solving problems, and learning. So I was like, all right, those are your five things you want to do that you need out of a job. So I just started talking to anybody in Boston that would talk to me and, and saying like, hey, I, I need to do these five things. And this is my past. And this is what I've done. And this is what I can do for you. And was able to parlay that into a job as like a director of strategic projects, which the CEO of the company, Brian Hearn, that I was at, it's called Threat Stack. He's like, look, man, I don't even know what I want you to do here. I just want you on the team. So I'm going to make this position up for you. Which turned into me like doing a number of key initiatives for him, working with underperforming teams, um, working on the company's culture. Awesome, awesome experience. Was there for two and a half years, mm-hmm. and then recently transitioned to another company um, called Adapt Health that does like at-home medical supplies. I think of like CPAP machines and diabetes resupply. And so, working in their technology department as their, their senior director of strategic projects, communications, and um doing a similar job set with that, with the the chief technology officer. So I think for a lot of veterans or just anybody in life that is transitioning or thinking about transitioning or looking to see what's next or wanting to get the most out of their job, you, you have to be truthful to yourself. And I think that that was something that I learned where, like, for instance, I can't be motivated purely by money. I just can't. I walked away from a family business that was doing $20 million in revenue a year to go make $40 a day as a Green Beret training. It's not me, right? So you have to be truthful as to what is, like, is going to motivate you. Right? And you have to walk to the path, like your own path. But right? you have to define what success is for you as a person. You cannot let other people define what success is. You cannot worry about what your resume looks like. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you can't worry about these things because what you're going to do is find yourself in a situation that it's not happy for you. The best way for you to succeed is for you to be in a situation that you that you enjoy, right? That you can make the most out of that situation. And so, yeah. like that's that's what I really always when I'm talking to vets that are looking to transition is like, look, you 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 gotta be true to yourself um, as to what you want out of a job and what you want out of life. You know, do you want to be on the road four days a week? Do you want to work 100 hours a week? Like, sounds okay now. Trust me, when you're in the thick of it, it's not going to be much fun. Your wife's going to hate you. Kids might not see you, right? Like, So, you know, thinking kind of along those lines with the the transition process, I think is is super important. Another thing too that I tell a lot of transitioning vets is what you really need to do though too, like you got to have those conversations with yourself, but you got to get out there and get that first job, right? It's not going to be perfect, right? But what it's going to do is give you that first opportunity for you to then really understand like what you do like and what you don't like. the chances are you're probably going to hate your first job out of the military because you don't know what you want. We hear that a lot. Yeah. Right. You don't know what you want. You're not being truthful to yourself. and (laughs) You got to go and touch the hot stove a couple of times to learn those mistakes.
0: And so do you think that you found that or how many steps did it take you to find that? And did you, did it take anyone else's influence or advice along the way, or did you figure this out mostly on your own? Oh, no. I mean,
1: everything in my life is due to the help of other people. And, you know, that is just a series of mentors, military and non-military alike, that have helped kind of guide me down this path thinking. and thinking. And also, like, for me, understanding, too, that whatever job that I have, it needs to allow me to be able to pursue other passions in life, too giving back like that sense of purpose, being on the board of the Green Beret Foundation, you know, having the ability to to travel the country and do public speaking, right? Like those are things I need to be able to do as a person and what I want to do out of life. And so that needs to be something that is allowed in my job, whatever I have. Right. And I think that that's a way too that, that a lot of veterans can continue to find purpose, like find a job that is going to fulfill you through the things that are important to you. But then also there's plenty of avenues for you to give back to the veteran community to anybody to just society in general and, and find those those things that continue to give that purpose and that
0: sense of mission so getting into public speaking, I think that you said you started as like blogging about your experience and then did someone influence you to start like getting in front of the crowd or or how did you move into that I started working with another green beret that had similar injuries and I really
1: enjoyed working with him and it was a really good experience. And I realized like how impactful it could be. So I started to, um, I started to want to like reach out to other people and I thought a great way to do that would be to start a blog. Right. And just being very truthful. So everybody's like, Oh wow, you looks like you're doing great. I'm Like, Oh, well it's actually pretty hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's not all great. You're not with me all the time right? when I'm crying at night. And wanted to be able to, to start that and, 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 put that out to people. And I went home in like the summer of 2012 I think, for the first time since I've been wounded. A lot of people asked me to speak. I spoke at my dad's church my high school and I was like, okay, well this seems kind of impactful. And you know, when I went, went to grad school where I finally got out of the military in, in 2013, my alma mater, uh, union college asked me to come back and be their keynote speaker for veterans day. So what I did was I took all of my public speaking classes and I tailored it. I used it to practice for that speech. Because I'll tell you, I have spoken a hundred times and I still get terrified getting in front of a crowd of people speaking, but utilize that. And that was kind of like the first time we I'm like, wow, this is really impactful. And so what I would do is take a public speaking class every term at grad school to just continue to work on that and work on it. because. I I liked it. Like I liked being up there once I got over the nervousness of it and and working with people and seeing the impact it could have on them. Worked with a professor at MIT uh, to to work on like workshops and things that I could do with people. Uh, So it's it's been an awesome part of all this
0: to be able to take the lessons that I learned and give them to other people now. So when you speak, what kind of key messages do you work on other than trying to simply recount your story? Because Maybe it starts off there, but at some point, do you have a realization that you can you can try to use this opportunity to get a message out that you want? Yeah, I think that's it's pretty cool because over time things have changed.
1: Right, for a long time for me, it was just about like combat and getting hurt. That was so like right in my face, and that was that's what the whole thing was. A couple of years ago, I realized that the combat sets it up, like the injuries set it up. Well, what people find super interesting is what happened afterwards. Like that's what they find relatable and, and, and how I was able to overcome that. So I really try to shift a lot of the focus to that. i like, Hey, this is what happened. And these are the lessons I learned. And these are, how you can apply it to you in your life. And then now, like, as I get older and experience more things, there's even more lessons to it, right. To talk now about more about transition, about finding purpose in these things. And so it's, it's cool because it kind of just evolves over time.
0: Okay. Last question. Cause we have to ask everyone this, but, uh, for our show, we want to know after we talked about all this and kind of taking it like a once over your story, who are you today? If you never served. Yeah. I think about that a lot. And really? I, I do. Yeah. And I think
1: about that a lot because like, I think I really run against the grain to decide to serve and gave up a lot like i said family business a lot of money you know my life was a completely different trajectory because of it and it was awesome And i don't regret it one bit so i i think about that a lot because you know i say to myself like imagine if you didn't serve and imagine if you didn't get on that plane to go down to basic training how different your life would be and how much regret you would have to live with and so i try to keep that in my mind where it's like look man it's worked out well for you following your gut you don't ever want to live with regret right and that's kind of how i try to try to view all my decisions in my life much to the chagrin of my wife who like thinks i'm insane half the time with all my ideas and what i want to do
0: so we didn't even talk about the boston marathon but i know that You've recovered enough to where you've been training for the marathon. COVID stole it from you this year. Yeah. But we want to see. We definitely want to see you run it. I did, I, did a, I did a
1: 20 miler before they canceled the uh, the race. So, you yeah, know, that was a promise yeah. I made to myself in the intensive care unit. I was going to run a marathon. I um, say it would have been too easy for me to just train and run a marathon. We had to have a global pandemic thrown in there, but uh, it, yeah. it will happen at some point here. Well, there's no better one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to try to run Boston and New York city back to back in the fall. So we'll see. uh, Hey, hey, look, we gotta, we gotta do this thing big, right?
0: Well, I mean, of course, why would, why would you do it any other way? (laughs) My kids think I'm going to win. Oh, (laughs) all right. (laughs) Well, uh, like, well, I'll just try to to finish kids. That'll be winning here. You're in the, what? The 35 to 37 male combat wounded. The one and a half good leg category. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for being on with us today. We'll keep in touch and uh, super excited to see you uh, crush those marathons. And then uh, really excited to see all the other stuff that you're doing as well. I appreciate it guys. Thank you so much for having me on here today. Thanks Kevin. Thanks for tuning into this episode of thank you. Now what the podcast about life after service be on the lookout for Kevin helping people forge resilience in their own lives by sharing his story Pick up your copy of the book, Three Wise Men by Bo Wise. As always, thanks for listening to our show. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You, Now What?